The following contains themes of suicidal ideation and self-harm and may not be suitable for all listeners. Please be advised. She just cried and cried and cried and basically said to me, I don't actually know if I want to live. When Catherine Norman's 16-year-old daughter told her she wasn't sure she wanted to live anymore, it was a shock that jolted her into action. This is Breaking Point, a podcast about the impact of the pandemic on the mental health of teenagers. Normand is an educational psychologist and says despite her experience, she ignored all the warning signs that her daughter was in desperate trouble. The pandemic had caused everyone mental stress and she just thought it was a normal teenage reaction to an abnormal situation. Honestly, I didn't notice anything. I thought it's just normal teenage stuff. And actually, when I think about it, my biggest mistake was not really sitting down and going, what's going on? It was just almost negating the feeling and saying, everybody's, everybody's miserable, everybody's had a hard time, nobody really likes school at the moment, and just pull yourself together and get on with it. That was my message the whole time. It took the school counsellor calling Catherine to discuss her daughter for her to finally realise just how serious the situation was. I'm so aware of how privileged we are because not every school, not every child has that is fortunate to, to have access to that kind of skill within their school. Um, and she just said to me, I'm very, very worried about your daughter. And I really, I, I, my mind was blown. I was like, I'm, I'm, I work from home. I fetch them every day. I'm with my kids all the time. What she didn't realise was that that would be a turning point in getting her daughter the help she needed. Anyway, I got into the car with her. She, she wasn't in the meeting. Um, I think she was actually in the sick room. And I just said to her, what's going on? And she just cried and cried and cried and basically said to me, I don't actually know if I want to live. Fortunately for me, I work in this field, so I have connections. So I just made phone calls and found a psychiatrist who could help us immediately who saw her immediately. When I look back, our blessing was that we were able to act really quickly. After a few weeks of treatment, her daughter asked if she could be admitted to a mental health clinic. Catherine was at first reluctant to go the hospital route. That was the last thing I wanted. But I spoke to the psychiatrist and he actually said, look, if she's asking for it then, and we can get her space, then that's a really good option. I didn't feel like it was a good option at the time. But I spoke to the psychiatrist and I spoke to the psychologist and actually we realised that, you know, weekly therapy, even bi-weekly therapy and medication wasn't enough to shift to help her kind of get out of the really dark space she was in. She was lucky enough to get into a place quite close and she was there for two weeks and it was, honestly, I think the best thing that has ever happened to her. And because of COVID, we weren't even allowed in. She went through a process of intensive individual therapy, group therapy, occupational therapy, which sounds a bit odd for that age, but they really teach them life skills. So she came out and she definitely wasn't back to her normal self. Um, 
And as a family, certainly myself and my husband were quite anxious about keeping an eye on her and making sure that she was taking her medication. And I suppose it's been mm, four months, maybe five months now, and I feel like she's back to normal. It's extraordinary. Her daughter is still on antidepressants and has come a long way since that day she confessed she wasn't sure if she wanted to live. Catherine regrets not taking the warning signs seriously earlier. She was in her room a lot. She landed up watching more and more kind of movies and stuff. There was no joy, there was no spark, there was no interest, no sharing of information. She was in her bedroom a lot more than she would have been. And there was a lot more um, of me needing to call her out, please come and eat, come and sit at the table. Psychiatrist Dr. Tamara Moreski says it's sometimes tricky to discern what is normal behaviour and what isn't. In my personal opinion, is not to wait until things get to a point where it feels like a blatant red flag. When you see a young person functioning differently to how they normally would function. And the big areas you're looking for are how are they engaging with their peers? How interested are they in engaging with peers? Are they engaging with in their family system the way that they have usually engaged? Or are they wanting to become more isolative? And that's obviously challenging because there's some normative behavior with teenagers where they do want to sort of spend less time with the broader family and more time with peers. And so one has to be somewhat discerning, but you're also looking for that particular behavior clustered with other things. Perhaps there's a change in academic performance or even interest in doing things that they previously enjoyed doing. So I think the important word to focus on is change. When you notice a significant change, which doesn't feel like a developmentally normative or expectable change and is taking a child backwards rather than forwards, that would be worrisome to me. And I think having a low threshold for seeking support is probably a better idea because, of course, if you pick something up early, it doesn't take so much to spin things around and to help a young person back towards a position of health and thriving. Catherine was able to get help for her daughter because she had contacts that she could call immediately. Moreski says psychologists and psychiatrists often have long waiting lists, and with the increase in demand, it can mean a three-month wait. But, she says, parents do have other options. It is an extremely difficult situation because the resources, um, the clinicians that are available to and specialised in working with children, they just aren't enough. And I think that in the public health system, there are even fewer clinicians that can provide the health. So it, it really is a public health issue that I think we're facing across the board. But having said that, I think that for parents to be tuned in to how their child is doing and have open lines of communication where they're able to ask and check in and allow the child a space to honestly express their feelings and what they're experiencing. If parents see there is a need for professional help but can't get an appointment with a psychiatrist immediately, Moreski says consulting a GP is a good interim measure. She says medications can be very effective, but therapy and learning resilience are just as important. But the real work is most often done 
in therapy. That often is where one is able to try and understand what has driven a child into a place of dysregulation towards the mental illness. And if one can then help upskill them or give them better coping mechanisms and really try and find ways to prevent future mental illness. The pandemic has forced us into living a life in isolation, and the lockdowns in particular were difficult for most teens. Human beings are not designed to be isolated. And the difficulty with mental illness, extreme mental illness, is often that as a symptom of the illness, people start to isolate themselves. They draw away from the people that they love and care about. They often their moods and their thinking becomes disordered. So they often start having difficulty interpersonally. And other people draw away from them because they find them difficult. So this the cycle of isolation is a problem. And breaking that cycle of isolation is definitely the most important step in all of it. Psychologist Mark Delaray says the pandemic has seen an increase in teenagers requiring admission to clinics. And suicide attempts have also been on the increase. It's quite scary. You know, we don't see them yet in terms of admission, but if you talk to the psychiatrists who work with children and adolescent psychiatrists, they are seeing as young as eight, nine, ten-year-olds attempting suicide and not really fully understanding what they're doing, obviously. But it's actually getting much younger and the frequency of these things is increasing, these attempts. He says it's important to be present in your child's life and pick up the warning signs before it's too late. Kids will say certain things. It doesn't mean automatically they are suicidal, but they're talking about I wish I wasn't around. So This is so tough. I hate this. I don't want to be around here anymore. That's not an automatic sign they are suicidal. That's where we're starting to talk about people feeling, or kids feeling overstressed and, and, and helpless in a sense. So I think it's in the language, if you, if you are present, and then big shifts in behavior. That's the most obvious things to look for. I wouldn't advise necessarily to go and tell them, oh, show me your arms and show me your legs. Let me see if you're, you know, you, then you're already creating or you're increasing that barrier between between the two of you. And spending time together as a family is important. I think that sort of FaceTime, not FaceTime on the devices, we are missing out on. We're not having that with our kids. And we need to try and do some of those things. Not every night. Start small. Have something and say, listen, we as a family need to agree that three nights a week, could be more, I mean, preferably more, but let's say three nights of the seven days of the week, we are going to sit together at the table. Cell phones, not in the room. Or sit there or eat some meal. And if you finished your meal and you're there for 10 minutes, that interaction starts to come. As a family, you don't just spend money. Just spending some time with your kids. That's what's important. Delaray, who says families who can't afford the costs of psychologists or psychiatrists, do have other options too. If you look around, I mean, especially in Cape Town, so this is, you know, my town in that sense, so I know around Cape Town, there are many NGOs, there are many groups of people uh, be it social groups, be it church groups, be it NPOs that offer assistance free of charge. There's some um, youth groups that are starting up. And I think if you start looking towards those, if you have no other way to go, those are places where you can get help. There's also the group SADAG, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. Long waiting lists for psychiatrists and psychologists can be a stumbling block. I simply don't have the time. And I refer to colleagues, psychiatrists, and um, they're inundated kind of something we were expecting. When lockdown came, we started speaking about it two, three months into lockdown. We were saying if this continues for any length of time, there's going to be an avalanche. NGOs like Community Keepers are trying to plug the gaps. CEO Gerrit Lening says 
his organization fundraises to pay their staff and offer services to children for free. So what you've referred to is actually called a treatment gap. And it actually denotes the inability of people who would be in even more need of services to actually access services. And that is very true and even more so true for a psychological support, uh, mental services, as you call it. Uh, so community keepers play a role in that we are involved in schools. We have got permanently based offices at present at 29 schools in the Western Cape. And we fill that gap. So we, we create the accessibility, the ability of a learner to walk into an office and to say, I report, I need somebody to talk to, and we are then there and available with professional people to attend to their needs. So, of course, our, our own expertise and our own capacity also stretches only as far as um, it goes to, to clinical psychologists. But once we... Um, need to refer a learner into to proper psychiatric institutionalized care, then we again have to access the public service. Uh, benefit being that we are quite adamant when we've got clients, so we force open those doors um, and um, in, in a very nice way, I, I hope. Uh, but ultimately, um, we are then in a position to say to the public mental health capacity, that a learner that we would refer um, would be a candidate that really needs the service and that would, in a sense, be pre-screened for the need. The pandemic has pushed many people towards breaking point. I think we currently speak in metaphors like the tip of the iceberg. And literally, when we speak of the tip of the iceberg, it is when we start seeing suicides and extreme cases of abuse. It kind of just shows the, the little tip of what is actually happening at this stage. So I think social inequalities and social psychological needs have always been there. But with the pandemic, everything has just increased. And I think in that way, all of us have got some experience of increased anxiety, increased feelings of being worried about the future. And then you can imagine if, if you come from a fairly privileged background, where things were okay and you are now feeling things are not okay, can you just imagine what it is like if you come from a background where things were previously not okay and now just being super not okay? Jo Borrell, who has suffered from depression herself, also believes children need to be educated to recognise its symptoms. She's trying to get the topic of mental health introduced into life orientation classes at schools. When I was a child desperately depressed, at the age of 10, 11, I actually thought it was normal. I thought everybody felt like that. And then sometimes I used to kind of wonder, like, how can this one be smiling so much if he or she feels so bad? But I always just thought everybody felt like that. So if I had somebody coming into my classroom or my school and took a small group, for example, onto the field to sit in like a circle or something and just told me how depression feels and what she does about it and that she's okay now, that would have been life-changing for me. Because I would have maybe gone to my parent or gone to a teacher and said, yeah, so-and-so said that she feels like this and I feel like that too. So I think kids desperately need a two-sided conversation and I think that's what they're missing. She's in contact with the education department and hopes that she'll be able to start webinars in 2022. I just think during LO lessons, as I said, 
get the topic of mental illness spoken about, cover all the symptoms, cover the, the most common types, just so that the child can identify and, and say, oh, wow, I think this is me. I think I do need some help. I think I do need to talk to my mom or a friend or, or anybody. Because the problem with these teen suicides is, in their minds, there's just no other option. They don't know how to deal with these terrible, intense feelings, and they just there's no other option in their minds but to, to end their lives. It would have completely changed my life because I would have gone into therapy at a younger age. I would have got the medication I needed. I only started proper medication last year, so it's taken me 44 years to, to finally get a proper diagnosis with proper treatment. Mental health is so stigmatised that if you are feeling bad, lots of people will say, oh, we all feel bad. Everybody feels bad. And that's unfortunately how it's treated. Mariski believes shared experiences can be healing. I think, unfortunately, in our day-to-day -day lives, in the in sort of busy, fast-paced urban worlds that we live in, those connections and those opportunities to speak authentically about difficult things and to show one's vulnerability, there aren't many opportunities to do that. And it's often not really very positively reinforced. But in fact, that is the key to having a healthier society and to dealing with difficult times like this. And in some ways, a, a shared stress, a trauma that many people have shared is actually people fare better because they realize they're not alone and that they're having a normal experience to an abnormally stressful circumstance. And it becomes easier to deal with, I think, because of that. So the answer is really that the key lies in opening up and sharing and having the courage to be vulnerable. For Catherine Normand, she hopes the unpredictability of this pandemic may eventually have a positive outcome. There's a part of me that really believes that human beings are so incredibly robust and malleable that we find ways to survive and thrive no matter what. And if we look around, people are surviving. Some people are taking more strain than others. I wonder, actually, if we're not going to have a generation of young or people going forward that are just more accustomed to change and to adapting because suddenly the plans can't be what they thought they were going to be. Moreski says the fallout of this pandemic will be felt for years to come, but maybe there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think that it's impossible to imagine that this has not had a significant effect on society at large, on the individuals within it, on families. It's affected us on so many different levels. And it was such, there's a chronicity to the stress that I think makes it very unlikely that there'll be no impact. There has to be some impact. And I do think it's difficult though to know exactly what that impact will be. I think that one can imagine that things you know, there may be some delayed onsets, that this might lay a foundation of stress, that with the cumulative stress, one might find things popping up later. But, but equally, humans are incredibly resilient and adversity is often a doorway and a gateway to expansion and growth and learning. If you or anyone close to you is struggling with mental health issues, please contact the South African Depression and Anxiety Group on 0800 456-789. This episode was produced by me, Catherine Rice, for News24. In-studio recording and editing by Greg Kokoveos. Field recording by Bertram Malchas. Music courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. Multimedia editors Charlene Roert and Nokotula Maniati. 
News24 Editor-in-Chief, Adrian Besson. For other News24 podcasts, visit our multimedia page where you can find The Engelot Story, A Miscarriage of Justice, and My Only Story, Back to School. For more exclusive content, subscribe to news24.com.